The guest on our show today is Angus Tarnowski, an interdisciplinary artist and researcher investigating everyday listening practices in urban spaces. Angus, welcome. Thanks, Veronica. Great to be here. So I'd like to start by painting a picture for our listeners of what your current work looks like. Could you describe to our listeners what sound walking is? Sound walking is a research practice. You go for a walk and you listen very carefully to your environment, but you also listen to the voices that might emerge in your head as you start to think about things. And the way that sound walking has been structured by researchers as well as artists is to kind of come up with instructions. Often when you go for a sound walk, although I described it as going for a walk and listening, usually in a sound walk, you're given some kind of an instruction and that's really what makes it distinctive. Right now we're down here at the very beginning of the Lachine Canal. We're actually standing looking over at a couple of the grain mills. When I first came to Montreal, I would always come here. It's actually one of the reasons that I started to become intrigued with the canal as a place to go sound walking. This particular square, so for those of you listening, we're down here by the old Montreal port, here on sort of one corner overlooking the beginning of what is the Lachine Canal. There's this sort of square on the ground that you can see used to have something in it, but now there's just the outline of a square. This was a sound installation. And the reason that I've been doing sound walking is that I'm interested in sound installations in public spaces. And so for me, I've been sort of exploring how sound walking might be something that I could do to let me connect with places somewhere like the Lachine Canal and to kind of better understand it by actually spending time walking around, listening, thinking, and then future steps for me is that I'm trying to work on on sound installation projects for spaces like this. So for me, that's why I always introduce sound walking as like a research practice, is that I think that you'll find some sound walking activities that are much more structured. Whereas today, what we're probably going to do is we're sort of going to go on a sound walk, but we're also going on what I would call a sound talk walk, (laughs) where we're going to talk about sound, talk about listening, while also walking and listening and thinking and all of this stuff. But it's a little different to what, for example, if you're at, say, like a arts festival and you sign up to go on a sound walk, that would probably be a very structured activity where you'd be led by someone and you'd be given instructions on stuff to listen for, as well as moments that you might want to stop. And to be perfectly honest, sort of in the way that I'm doing now, where I'm telling you, look at this square on the ground, that's a like a real hallmark of sound walking is trying to point out to people, hey, here's something that you wouldn't otherwise notice. Let's see if this activity can get you to become aware of it and then maybe give you some context and perspective on it. So, you know, sound walking in that sense can be really artistic. To explain to you what this is, it was a thing called the xylophone. There was a little booth here and what you could actually do was speak into a sort of a a mouthpiece. And that would actually take the signal from where we're standing over to those grain mills on the other side. And it it would play the sound that you were speaking in here through the grain mill with all of the echo, all of the reverb. And then it would bring it back here so you would hear it coming out. So it was, it was almost like when you walk into a really cavernous space and you, you yell or you clap your hands and you hear the echo. It was doing that, but it was 
for people who are walking along this section of the canal, you can't actually get access to those grain mills over there. So this was an interesting project, I felt, in terms of allowing people to interact with this inaccessible space. For some reason, about a year or two ago, this would be around 2021, 2022, pandemic, pandemic zones. There was like a, like a concrete kind of thing that you would step up to and like put your ear against this space and speak into this space. And it that said, no, it's certain. Well, maybe That's that was probably why it was removed and just not reinstalled. Yeah, potentially. I'm not entirely sure. I'm actually looking into researching this a bit more for my own work. So I'll have to get back to you on that one. So I have two questions I want to ask right away to follow up on that. The first one is, can you recall a time that, or kind of what got you interested in the subject of sound walking? Like, how did that begin? And then also, why the Lachine Canal of all the sites? Yeah, well, should we walk and talk? Let's do it. Okay. So maybe what we can do is we can actually walk over uh, this bridge and we'll sort of go to the other side of the canal and kind of walk past the grain mills that we've just been discussing. Okay, so what got me into sound walking? Yeah. It's sort of my way of asking you what your influences are. Like yeah. I would a painter, like who are, what influenced sound walking for you? I knew about sound walking because I'd read about it. I knew about some really important sound walkers like Hildegard Westerkamp. Andrew McCartney is another person who was here in Montreal, actually, during the pandemic, there was a lot of interest in virtual things, right? Like, how do we make Zoom more fun? And one of the ideas... We can't, but... We can't, no. But one of the ideas that was pitched was, could we do virtual sound walks? Uh, sound walks in virtual spaces or, like, sound walks mediated virtually the second one sound walks mediated virtually but th there are some people who've done research and work on sound walking in virtual spaces doing projects in sort of second life type environments my sort of connection with sound walking begins during the pandemic so yes at that stage i've read a little bit about sound walking i know what it is but basically there's a research cluster at concordia university uh, also associated with other universities called Spoken Web. Spoken Web, we're just looking for someone to organize this mediated sound walk experience for a conference they were holding, which was gonna be pretty much entirely on Zoom. And so their concept was that, how could we make it that the 100 or so people that are gonna be on Zoom in all these different parts of the world might feel a little bit connected to one another? And the organizers felt that sound walking might be a really good way because they would be able to potentially go for a sound walk at the same time, even though they're in different parts of the world. Maybe there was a chance to be connected in this one activity that they all did at the same time. So I actually did a deep dive into sound walking at that point. Keep in mind, I've never been on a, like a quote-unquote official sound walk or something. I just... At yeah. that time, I just really have like an innate sense of what sound walking is from reading about it and also just doing it. You don't really need a qualification to be a sound walker. But the difference is, is that I'd never thought about leading other people. And so what I was kind of perplexed by was how do I make it so that I give people the maximum amount of autonomy that I can in this whole sound walking experience while making it useful for what the goal is, which is to try and bring people together in this sense. 
Yeah, so for me, I kind of came up with this workshop, which I ran for the conference, which was called Noting, Noticing, Notating, or Noticing, Noting, Notating. I think, I think it was that order. Anyway, all of those three words in whatever order you want. The idea was that I tried to make what a sound walk could be very, very open while giving some like really clear guidance on how you might document your experience not so much to share it with others per se, but I think to strengthen it for yourself. And so we discussed ideas about drawing sort of sound maps, which is a sort of, you know, kind of clunky way of saying any kind of a drawing or something that would let you relive your experience. We also came up with that concept of the sound talk walk, which we're doing now. Didn't necessarily invent it, but came to understand that actually talking <laughs> on a sound walk is sometimes very good. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I can see how it's distinct from just listening. Ex exactly. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, we can maybe get into it more a bit further on, but I am curious how the experience of listening alone versus listening alongside others. I think that when you listen with others, it's kind of healthy. Because sometimes when you're listening by yourself, you do get really stuck in a particular lane. Here's a good example, I think. Like when you focus on a sound like a dripping tap, right? And all you can hear is the dripping tap sound. But someone else walking into that situation would say, what dripping tap? I don't hear a dripping tap. So I actually think it's kind of healthy to sound walk or listen in a group. Yeah, I thought of that question because I was thinking about the work of Gabby Moser, who's a media theorist, and she was thinking about this question of like, with photographs of looking alone versus looking together, and how looking in a group dynamic changes what you see. Maybe your perception of what you hear could be skewed by the perceptions of others or the opinions of others. You know, this is, question. I think that is a great question, Veronica, because you're right. Part of the reason why I say I think it's healthy to listen in these group settings is because you have a chance for dialogue. And you're right. It is kind of like worrying that if you, you are guided by someone and they tell you what you should listen for or what you should be doing. At the expense of other things that you are then ignoring or beginning to ignore. Exactly. Part of my research into sound walking has been trying to critique it a little bit. And without realizing it, my very, very first interaction with it basically was a critique of that because so many sound walks are enforcing a kind of an opinion and trying to get you to fall in line with that. These kind of suggestions are not innocent per se. I think like what I found with sound walking is that it's a relatively niche activity. And there's probably when you take that question of listening in a group versus listening alone, it's probably a bit more nuanced in the larger conversation. But in terms of sound walking, it's an environment where you've all perhaps as a group, let's say there's five of you and you've gone on a sound walk, you've all heard something along the, the sound walk that was really important to you. You've all heard your sort of dripping tap, perhaps. And you get to the end of the walk, you can even just share the things that you noticed on that walk. And I guarantee you that not all people in the group will have noticed your list, right? And from that, there's a pretty amazing conversation to be had just about very simple things. Like, well, why do you think you 
kept hearing that sound so much. Questions like that, like that I think are really healthy. For me, sound walking is about uncovering and, and understanding places, getting a sense of the place from the surface, yes, but maybe going a little deeper along the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought sound walking to my attention because I'm realizing just how un, untuned we are sometimes in our environments. Like, have you ever seen someone maybe walking down the street and they're on their phone and it seems like they are absorbed in this digital world and and I've been that person at the expense of everything else around me. And so to like reorient myself to my sensory experience as I'm in a place right here, right now, you can do that with smell, as the smell changes when you're walking through a space. But I think sound is also another one that's so special, especially for an urban space, because there's just so much going on. Like even in the short time that we've walked from the port through the canal, there's been like a man on his phone kind of walking past us and talking and cars and seagulls and me crunching leaves and all of these different sounds that are kind of like conflicting one another and fighting for space. We're currently passing the Farine Five Roses building, which is another massive factory industrial space along the canal. We're walking right from the old port of Montreal, which depending on how you think of it, maybe that's the end of the canal, maybe that's the start. The canal goes all the way to the neighborhood of Lachine, which is actually 14 kilometers from where we started to where we finished. So we probably won't cover the full length today, I don't think, but we're covering some parts of the canal that I've been researching that are full of these buildings, right? And that was sort of like the sound installation kind of got me to the canal being like, this is really interesting. There's, there's not a lot of permanent public art installations or sound art installations, I should say. Uh, and, and in fact, as I was discussing, that one is no longer there. So permanent is a kind of relative word in this world. But again, these buildings have a certain level of permanence to them on the Montreal landscape because take, for example, the first set of silos. I think they paint a picture of Montreal for some people, just in the same way that this Farine Five Roses sign is a kind of iconic reminder of what the Lachine Canal was responsible for, which in summary, the Lachine Canal was this place where from the 1820s on... Bonjour! It was basically, the canal was a place where the city really galvanized in an industrial sense. And all of a sudden, you could move materials bypassing the St. Lawrence River, which has some really intense rapids. And of course, you know, we're walking on this like green path, but this has only existed since the 70s. Is the Lachine Canal a special site for any other reason that you haven't already mentioned? So it's a site of industry historically in Montreal, but is there any other connection to that that's important for you? The Lachine Canal ride is serving as a kind of focus point, but the biggest, I guess, thing that has I, I really think has been the most important thing I've been doing as a researcher is trying to understand how I can move forward in this world conducting better relations with the land that supports my existence here, with other ways of understanding this world that are challenging me to think beyond what I consider to be normal or 
the status quo. So something that I left out about that earlier question about uh, listening alone or listening together was that um, something else that Gabby Moser wrote about was how ideologies impact what we see. And I feel like that's what you're about to allude to a little right. bit with what you are <laughs> able or unable to hear, just like what you are inclined or unable to see. Speaking about this environment, I think of it as an urban green space because although it was for a long time closed off and industrial, since the 70s, there's been a long bike path. And actually in the early 2000s, it really got further developed into this kind of park setting that we now see where, yes, it's a little bit industrial around the edges, but there's places you can have a picnic and it's green and there's more trees and stuff like that. When I first came here, I had that feeling of just enjoyment, being by the canal, a little bit of nature whilst in the city. And it was only after kind of more and more and more visits that I became really confused. There is absolutely no contemporary indigenous presence. To contrast that, as we'll see on this walk today, starting from about this next corner we're coming up to and continuing for pretty much the whole canal, there's information about how important the canal was to Montreal and how important these factories that were here were to the wealth and prosperity of not only Montreal, but Canada. So it just got me thinking, wow, if this is a national historic site run by a governmental agency, Parks Canada, and the main thing that we're being told here is how amazing Canadian industrial might was, it just felt like a really unbalanced way of explaining the canal to people. And so the dilemma is, is that from my archival research so far, it doesn't appear that the canal is a particularly well-documented place of importance for the First Nations that were around this region. It appears that it was most likely uh, used in, in, in sort of a similar way, which is that there used to be a very large lake. And so how the canal was created is that there was kind of like a swampy lake that was eventually drained and repurposed into the canal. But there, were, there already was a bit of a natural canal here, so to speak. It didn't go the whole distance of 14 kilometers, but even back in pre-canal days, people were, for example, crossing the St. Lawrence, portaging, carrying their, their canoes to this, this lake and then proceeding some distance and then portaging again. The real question that I'm grappling with is what it means to engage with a site that is so colonial. And I think that's why the canal has been useful because you could make this argument about a lot of different places. As you explained, it's a, it's a site of industry. And industry and the colonial project are so intimately tied in the 20th century. So you cannot, un, you know, untwine them that easily. What I've kind of been learning is that there aren't really simple or effective solutions because as much as it would be great to have a stronger, say, acknowledgement of the indigenous connections to the land here in the not only past but the present, I think that would be great to achieve, but if it's just going to be putting up a, a monument to the past, I don't. I think that's just sort of like the similar flawed logic of you've got all of these signs up saying how great it was for 
Canada to get really rich because of the factories on the canal, but what are the factories doing now? And then we get into a whole different conversation because if we look over here, the factories are now condos. And so you could flip this whole conversation and, and this has been actually powerful research that I've encountered where folks here in Montreal have tried to really understand the gentrification of neighborhoods like Saint-Henri or Griffintown and kind of coming to terms with what the canal represented, right? Because it was almost like, oh, it's industrial. We can do whatever we want with it. This conviction that there is such a thing as an uninhabited, unclaimed space at all. Yeah, and... That's a possibility. Exactly. And so, to me, a lot of my interest in this site hasn't been, well, it was terrible that there was all this industrial stuff here. There's a lot of layers to that. But it's my critique has more been, why in the 2000s, for example, when the Lachine Canal was being turned into like a much more legitimate national park, why were decisions made to turn it into the kind of park it is today? And my feeling is, is that those decisions were very much thinking colonially. And that is the question that I have, which is how can I think in an anti-colonial way? Like I have no hope of turning the canal into a non-colonial space. Like, that's not really within what it, it, it's possible for me right here, right now to do. But I can start to say, well, what are these, like, anti-colonial ways of thinking about this? And... What have you learned? <laughs> what have I learned? Well, I've learned that less is more and that sometimes it's really actually about decentering human experience and trying to really think in a much more holistic way about the world around us, which I think from the various First Nations scholars in Canada and Indigenous scholars elsewhere that I've engaged with their work, this seems to be a kind of common thread, trying to get back to some of those connections when we think, oh, everything is available for us to do whatever we want with it. That's a very different way of thinking than like, okay, how do I engage in a respectful relation. It's tough for me to even think like that because, for example, one of the ways that I think the canal exemplifies this sort of settler colonial thinking is this idea that the first thing that was put here in the 70s was a bike path. And I love biking. I actually really enjoy riding along this bike path. But there's a certain efficiency in that. There's not this kind of question of well, okay, how do I engage further with this site? And so then that's when you have this period in the 2000s where the canal is developed a little more and you start to have all kinds of places to sit and activities pop up. Like now it's possible to go do like a little bit of pleasure boating and you can go and uh, play ping pong at certain places or have a picnic, all, all this kind of stuff. And my feeling is, is just like, where, where things could have turned differently if you perhaps looked to community organizations and said, how would you like the canal to serve you? And it's in the records. Like, I've, I've been through the archives of the planning of the canal's rehabilitation. And, and you know, there's community involvement in terms of asking questions. But it kind of comes back to your, your previous thing about listening by oneself versus listening in a group or something. Because I... I'm not entirely confident that community voices that were surveyed in the 2000s or late 90s when this was all going on, that like they consulted with 
indigenous groups. Or just uh, um, a varied representation of this place. It, it just, it feels a little bit, and, and again, this could just be me looking at this point of history given the present time. And I'm sure that in that time in Quebec, people were having very different conversations to what they're having now. And so it's a question of saying, what can we learn from this? And how, if we were going to say, for example, redesign a section of the Lachine Canal, which is outside of the scope of what I am trying to do with either sound walking or developing public sound installations. The idea is, is that sound walking is this very personal way that you could engage with a site like this and that you could start to think about those kind of things. Uh, I'll give you an example. So I'm really fortunate right now to be teaching a class and it's all about sound and listening and the environment. So you can see why I got the gig. It's really, really aligned with my personal work at the moment. So I went on a sound walk with a group of students, about 20 or so, I think 23 students the other day. We did a couple of different sound walks on the canal and uh, we experimented with different ways uh, of walking. So like on one of the walks, we were in complete silence. And on another of the walks, we were encouraged to try and make sounds that would complement or interact with the environment. I didn't say what those sounds were. Uh, and a lot of us ended up picking up rocks and throwing them into the canal, which was kind of an amazing experience to be on this walk where you're just hearing this kind of catapulting splish splash. And then some church bells went off in the background and it became obvious that if you drop the rocks on the railing to the canal, they sort of resonated like a bell. So all of a sudden there's this cacophony of sort of bell sounds. And, and this is all just coming from a group of 20 people kind of walking along so anyway, we're doing things like this, and we get to the end of the walk, and one of the first walks that we did, I'd asked the students to think about questions relating to the canal and thinking about land. And I didn't say you know, what the question should be, I just said, think about the fact that we're on land here, and like what comes to mind as you're coming and walking along the canal in terms of questions about land. Hold on to those questions, let's talk about them. And one of the first questions that came up at the end was the person said, like, is the canal made by humans or is it like a natural river? And I think that's one of the number one questions that honestly, <laughs> that would be really good. It, like it's, it's not even very clear to people that the canal is a human made thing. To me, that was a great outcome of sound walking was that like at the end of this experience, somebody said, what were the forces that generated the canal? And, and by realizing that question, there's no way of avoiding the colonial history. So you still get the colonial history, but you just ask a more basic question about the environment around you. But sometimes, of course, you do come up with questions that no one knows the answer to. And I think that's another really important, what I would say, anti-colonial thing, is this idea that it's okay to not know everything. Kind of coming to terms with that in this practice has also been really nice. You know, I, I have this thought I'd like to voice because as we've walked, I've had multiple experiences of feeling very drowned out by the scale of the sound around me. Mostly industrial sounds, like right now we're hearing a dam and it's making it hard to hear me 
and for me to voice and express myself in the scale of the larger city and urban environment is, you know, the individual is a bit drowned out. And that's something that you, I think, could only experience if you were trying to record yourself and you were kind of cognizant of the scale of your own sound or like the sonic environment. I've been doing these walks where in a very similar way to we are now, where I have my, my little portable recorder, it's about the size of a phone. I've got a microphone plugged in. I've been trying to do this practice where I'll walk through here and I'll put a set of headphones on and I'll use the recorder and the microphone as like a magnifying glass. Yeah. And this is something that I learned from Hildegard Westerkamp where she would do this, but she would record. And that was the difference. She would record in that way. So like, for example, she would take a microphone around with headphones on so she could hear it really clearly, closely like move the microphone towards one sound or another, like you would a magnifying glass if you were reading something and you wanted to focus in on, on part of the text. But she would record that and her process was to turn that into works that she called soundscape compositions. And these would be a chance for people to maybe engage with a place from a distance. I mean, kind of when I think about it, it's not so different to the sound walking project I did for Spoken Web, right? During COVID where they wanted me to have people engage from a distance. A few different variables, but there's a continuum there. And anyway, the thing that I've been doing is doing that exact same process, but choosing not to record. And it changes things in actually quite a dramatic way because see what happens is that I've learned that this idea of extraction, of taking something is a very powerful colonial strategy, I suppose. If you, again, are, are utilizing this technology, which could, if you use it to you know, press record, takes the environment and gives you control to do whatever you want with it. Well, again, I'm not gonna say like, I think Hildegard worked from the correct place. I think she had really good intentions of how she was doing it. But in trying to further that work, I'm wondering, well, what does it mean when you walk through a place listening really carefully, but you're not recording because I don't know if you've ever done this, but like, you know, when you sometimes, I mean, you're, you're doing a radio show, right? And like, sometimes when you know that you're being recorded, you speak differently. Sure. You think just a little differently. So this is kind of fascinating for me because I've been walking on this canal and I've actually been hearing the world around me in an even more overwhelming way because with this technique, you really lose the kind of ego that goes with recording. Yeah. And you gain a lot more like, wow, I'm just, I'm holding an audio magnifying glass and oh, wow, what do I notice? I mean, one of the first things you notice is how much sound there is around you that you just naturally filter out. And of course, a microphone doesn't know to filter that out. So it hits you in a different way when you hear it. Like I think if you listened in this way all the time, you would learn to filter it out. But hearing it in that new way with the, the microphone and the headphones on, you're like, wow, there's all of this stuff going on that I never noticed. Well, something I, I want to ask you, or maybe it's more of an observation I want to share. Um, I'm having this thought that there's a lot of intention involved in sound walking. Um, or maybe that's my question is, what's the role of intention in sound walking? Because it almost sounds like the uh, walker listener becomes the like recording device and the notation device. And there's a readiness and a curiosity that comes with sound walking. So what's the role of intention in sound? 
intention is really everything because you gain more intention as you do more sound walking, right? There's just as much to get out of this sound talk walk that we're doing as much as there is us agreeing to not talk and listening silently for some period of time. Both are really powerful for different reasons. If you've set your intention to try and understand a place and the people that make their home in that place or the people that are traditionally from that place, you know, the culture or the layers of culture, I've learned a lot about the fact that I walk through spaces differently to other people. And see, that's a great thing that happens in the sound walking process when you do it in a group, right? It's really given me perspective about the privilege that I'm afforded. And then that kind of comes back into the intention because understanding that really has helped me, I think, to just try and be more sensitive to how complicated spaces and peoples and histories are and how there isn't really a, a, a simple answer to fix anything that I'm looking into. Like I said, I wish that I could come up with this like amazing solution that would just totally make the canal a million times better for whatever reason. But again, that would be, that'd be probably too much of my version of what makes the canal great. And I've just realized through this work on understanding my positionality in a place, understanding my relationship, that it's kind of more important to develop this stuff on a small scale. And that's why sound walking is great. I mean, you might even just call this a walk. But we're thinking a lot about sound, so I'm going to call it a sound walk. <laughs> I really like singing every time I come through this tunnel as well. Yeah. <laughs> what a nice surprise. Sorry, we're recording a, an episode for hey, my radio show. No, no, no. No, nah, no, nah, not at all. This is no, no. Dr. Makarova. Oh, hey, Angus. Nice this is the, uh, the class that I've been telling oh, you about. Oh, sweet. It's so wonderful. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we're doing a little... Do Hi. <laughs> yeah. See you next week. Yeah. Thanks. It's gone great so far. <laughs> bye. Right, bye. Nice to meet you. So there's this really, um, this attunement to your environment seems like the most radical aspect of sand walking for me. It's the one that I'm most excited by because the logic of capital is like, Put your head down, be productive. Yes. You don't need to look around. You don't need to be present in your environment. You need to plug into the meta space yes. and, and just make me some money. Yes. <laughs> that is, you know, that's how you survive in this world. Yeah. And so by going outside and also refusing to record what yes. you are picking up on your microphone is such an anti-productive stance. Yes. And it's really <laughs> nice. Thanks. Like it goes against the logic of the things that you disagree with. Yes. So. And I learned this explicitly to kind of pay respect to my inspirations and elders and all of this. I learned this from Dylan Robinson. He's a scholar here in Canada from the Stolo Nation. He's written a really important book for me called Hungry Listening, but also he's given a lot of talks and uh, workshops that I've been able to attend and, you know, I've been able to kind of talk to him in a bit more detail and one of the things that I know he's been developing is sort of this idea of indigenous artifacts in museums, right? And this kind of desire that people had to put these things in glass cabinets, this colonial urge, right? And he's really been trying to, I think, 
figure out why that was such a deeply held conviction and in the present what can be done to redress that and again to not continue doing that in his culture as it is in other cultures there's some things that are not for you for example the opening of dylan's book you read the introduction and then he tells you okay for those of you who are not indigenous do not read the second chapter of this book it is not for you continue on to the third chapter now I've never read the second chapter. I don't know what it says. Well, there's something very clear here about boundaries, and that's in issues of appropriation, what has always transgressed is somebody, somebody's boundaries aren't, like you're not curious about them, you never asked, you transgressed them. Maybe someone told you that, that you did that, and then you were like, I don't care. You know, like that's, that's the issue is it's an issue of boundaries. And I think that's what his example brings to the front in a lot of ways is he asks you not to do something. And it's kind of a litmus test in a way of like, do you respect his boundaries or not? And I think that's the great example about that chapter is that I learned so much from a chapter that I've never read, right? But I had to engage with it. I had to flip through the pages and follow the instruction not to read it. And I could talk to you for this entire radio show about not reading a chapter. Uh, and so for me, that's why sound walking has become a kind of useful and powerful thing is that there's seemingly nothing to be said. It's kind of like through the doing of the sound walking that you start to come up with these much more rich and kind of complex connections to questions you might have, places you might find yourself or that you are often in. In the history of sound walking, seems like a lot of people encourage you to do it in your own neighborhood. For example, when I did my very first sound walks for the Spoken Web project, it was sort of assumed, but maybe not like for everyone, but it was assumed that for most people, they'd probably be at their home. And so therefore their sound walk would be in their own neighborhood. And so therefore there would be a certain synchronicity that even though people were all apart, they were all potentially in a place that they considered home. People I find are definitely impacted by it. And I think that is a very powerful thing to realize. Like, I'm glad that you noticed that on this walk. Well, it's hard to not notice when people yell at you and say, hello, <laughs> brought to my attention that people are aware of us. Sound walking can get into some of the really deep political conversations that are at the core of life. Right? Like we've been talking about some of that. But on the other hand, sound walking can be this really like interpersonal thing that just lets you understand those kind of dynamics and relations. And like before I knew about sound walking in the kind of detail that I now do, I was first really excited by what you could do in public spaces. Who has access to them? Like, does public space even exist? I often say public space because. I'm trying to emphasize places like the Lachine Canal that are technically a national park. And so by that definition, anyone is supposedly allowed to be here. It's a fairly public space, I would say. I was really interested just in how people interacted in public spaces. And doing sound walking really made me think more about me and myself. But it, it also, as I started to push myself further and get past just that, it also got me thinking, like I said, about these bigger, larger than me ideas that really started to like take 
my perspective into a much larger context. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to ask you one more question. Um, and it's something that you've mentioned in your writing. Uh, you've written that sound walking has helped to show you that more often than not, the urban spaces you inhabit work to normalize uh, settler colonial forms of being and knowing. And I was just curious if you could give some examples of what you mean by that. Absolutely. So we talked about this a little bit earlier in the conversation when we were kind of describing how choices have been made along the canal that emphasize a certain picture, the industrial past, the potential for a contemporary real estate market, the potential for leisure activities like cycling and social activities that are good for the, the fabric of an urban society where, you know, otherwise you're stuck in your uh, your apartment and, you know, green space is good, all of this stuff. The conflicting thing is that I think all of that makes sense to me and, and is not exactly bad. Well, I guess my question is, how do those things express themselves through sound? You start with the kind of the, the looking at the environment. And then as you get into the, the listening, it's more the things that aren't there. The things you don't hear, exactly. And it's more that question of why is it and I think you especially notice this when you're in like a mediated listening using the, the headphones and the recorder to really hear everything at a louder level than you would hear just with your ears. Listeners at home could maybe try this. I know with a lot of new phones on the headphones, they'll have like transparency modes to actually pick up the sounds around you and you can kind of choose to amplify them. This might be one way to experiment with this idea if you don't have like a portable recorder and um, stuff like that. Part of what I think reinforces this, what I call settler colonial way of being and knowing, are the things that are not as, as obvious. You know, we can challenge that by listening because sometimes the advantage of having spaces where there are voids is that you have a chance to maybe have people listen differently. We're gonna just take a moment to uh, listen in to the water trickling by. I actually don't think it's going to get picked up on this microphone very much. There's this like competition between the flow of the water, which is usually quite peaceful, and the fact that we're underneath a highway. Let's pause our talk for a second, and I'll use a different microphone to just record this and see what we pick up. There's a train going past right now. And the train and other sounds like that really remind you that you are not in nature. <laughs> they really, I think, reinforce the reality that you're in this environment that's constructed. But it, for me, it's really more about the things that are absent. If different voices were made prominent, it's not gonna change some of the bigger conversations that we've been having in the, the dynamics of them, but I think if you conduct this as a practice over time, there's a lot to be said for how the sonic environment of a place may eventually make it, for example, public spaces more inclusive to certain groups of people. And it may make certain activities more viable there. And it may make for a richer and I think 
more whole use of these spaces in especially cities. To put it into context, the water that we were listening to, right, we had to unplug this microphone that we're using and we had to use another microphone to pick up the sound of the water mixed with the sound of the road because it was so kind of gentle and, and soft. And then here we are still on the path where the train was so loud. Imagine what it would be like to walk under there with your headphones on, with your recording device turned up really loud. You, you might want to run out of that tunnel. Like you might need to run. And like that feeling I think is an example of some of the ways that we might really start to understand how our spaces are shaped in Canada, we're just desensitized to the fact that settler colonialism was the inherent founding of this country, that I think we need ways to get back in touch with that, have it as part of dialogue and discourse that informs a lot of things that we're doing, that it would be good to have that in the kind of the, the perspective of whatever you might be doing, you know? So, so for me, the canal is this just exceptional place for that, right? And the, the other thing that I wanted to say, uh, Veronica, about being and knowing is that I have a really hard time fully internalizing ontological and epistemological as words. They're, they're really big words. And I know, <laughs> I know what each of them means, but my way of saying that the canal kind of enforces this sort of settler colonial way of being and knowing is really saying that it's the ontological and epistemological framing of this space is very settler colonial. And I'm trying to come up with a language because I just find some of those bigger words literally confusing for myself. And I don't know if it opens up the dialogue to the audience that I want to open this up to because I want to try and make these conversations, which are complex, I want to make them digestible to a hopefully fairly large audience. Well, what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're allowing people to feel with their senses some of these abstract concepts that we've been discussing. You can hear them, smell them, and you're encouraging people to get back into their bodies in a way that is, I think when we started this conversation, we were talking about how walking on a path, on a nature path, has been proven to be good for your mental health. Well, why is the question? It's because you're re-entering your body in ways that we're really discouraged from doing in modern life. We're in a rush. You know, the fact that we even have to pitch these projects as being good for our mental health, therefore productivity, and that's why they are worth doing, is kind of an indicator of how everything needs to be productive and things can't just be enjoyable. Yeah. Some things are like not exactly enjoyable in the moment, but doing them ends up being a really enjoyable experience. And, and I think for some of these questions, like that's the thing, like sometimes asking these questions about settler colonialism can be challenging. There's a really good argument, I think, for approaching stuff like that through just much more simple questions, much more like foundational experiences. And every time I go on a sound walk, I learn something new, not only about the place that I'm in, uh, but about myself, perhaps about the people I'm with. And so, yeah, for that reason, for anyone out there listening, I would very much encourage that you, hopefully feeling inspired by the chat Veronica and I have had, lace up your shoes or put on your boots or something and uh, head out the door and go for a bit of a sound walk. And, and if you do uh, want to check out some 
techniques, some ideas for sound walking. I'll leave Veronica with some links that are kind of useful. I'm kind of into breaking the rules. So if on your sound walk at home right now, you decide that you want it to be a sound cycle, well, you know, maybe go as slow as you can on your bike. Maybe go a little, little slower than normal. Or if it's going to be like a sound skate, yeah, that could be another thing, I guess. What if somebody wanted to sit in the same place and let the world move around them and just listen? Yeah, I mean, that sounds fantastic. I would also encourage that. That sounds good. I mean, the thing that I, f I find is most unique about sound walking is that you have to try and balance multiple things. Like, you have to have a certain ambidexterity that is, like, much more difficult to do, actually, when you're walking. I think it's a lot easier to sit in one place and not move and be able to listen. Like, I think you actually have a better chance of, like, hearing a lot more detail. And actually, on a lot of the sound walks that people structure, right, like the sort of the sound walk that you might do at an arts festival that has, you know, a big group and stuff, it will usually have points on the sound walk where whoever has composed it will stop the group. And usually it's in those moments that they really, really want you to focus on something and they kind of are acknowledging as the composer of this sound walk that if you were to just walk past it, it's, it's, it's a really big ask for you to actually pay attention to it. So like they ask you to stop so you can do it. So yeah, if you just want to sit somewhere and quietly listen, that's awesome. It, it, it maybe is like a different thing. So maybe you could start with that. And then if you're feeling excited by that, you know, you could try a sound walk and compare and contrast. Yeah, there is an element to this that is that I really enjoy of being out and being and walking in your city or in your neighborhood. Because it's kind of like this finite period of time where things happen around you and to you and in proximity to you. Turn on your senses and go for a walk and see what happens. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been honestly a really amazing chat, Veronica. I've really loved this. So thanks uh, a lot for having me on the show and for walking with me on the Lachine Canal. Thank you, Angus. Pleasure having you. <laughs> Beautiful is the mountain Beautiful is the river Beautiful is the land Beautiful is the sky It's so beautiful So beautiful It's so beautiful so Beautiful is the valley 
Beautiful is the sky Beautiful are the rivers Beautiful are the trees It's so beautiful So beautiful It's so beautiful So beautiful Beautiful are the children Beautiful are the old Beautiful is the sun Where many legends have been told It's so beautiful So beautiful It's so beautiful So beautiful
Son of the sun, son of the earth, the soul of life, children of the world, daughters of starlight, daughters of mirth, sisters of sunlight, sisters of earth, brothers of nature, brothers of old, brothers of legend.
wrote her a letter from the bark of a tree. I was telling her that I would soon be there. As the fire was lifting, my mind started drifting, drifting like the smoke curled in the air. The TV flaps were open, and the sun was all alive, and the smoke. Made everything look old. I've seen her in the fire, and I've seen her in the earth. Everything she touches turns to gold. I could see her in the water. I could see her in the clouds, singing like a bird who lost a friend. I have prayed to the spirit, and I thank them for our love. I thank them for the love that never
There were rats. 
was silent And the shoals were not visible The silver was hidden And the river had no bed that means what honey you see the graffiti on that sign back oh there? yeah yeah i think it said land back didn't it they mean the whole damn thing they want the whole damn thing back Expired. 
Please, Mr. Officer, let me explain. I got to make it to a powwow tonight. I'll be singing 49 down by the riverside, looking for sugar, riding in my Indian car. Got my T-bird in the glove box, I ain't got no spare. Got a feather from an eagle, I ain't got no care. The road is empty in my bottle of desire. Daylight is breaking, the sun touches fire. I got to make another powwow tonight. I'll be singing 49 down by the riverside, looking for sugar, riding in my Indian car. Shorty Medlock. I'd like to tell you about an old bunch of foxhounds I got. Old Ring and old Tig and old Rover. And when we start out across them Georgia hills hunting them foxes, it sounds something like this.
I'm actually glad to see you. I haven't really been feeling the best. Yeah, bro, I'm sorry. I can't hear your sad story right now. Uh, I gotta go. I got this other client. Fucker thinks he's a spirit. You know? He did turn a storm, but fuck, whatever. Everyone can do that. So, uh, I'll check you later. Wait, you serious? No, come on, come on, man. You literally invade my life whenever it's convenient for you, man. And as soon as I'm seeking help, you just bail? Okay, um, you got your, uh, your sacred curlies in, right? My what? Your sacred hairs, your man mesh, your nest of creation, your he muff, she muff, they muff down there. See, a long time ago, when our sacred hairs came in like that, it meant that we weren't children no more and that we started working for the people. You, you're acting like a kid, man. We all had a job, we all had a role. That's how we built strong nations, like each a stitch in the great loincloth of the people. I don't even know what that means, man. Fuck, I don't even know what it means, man. I'm just making up as I go along, all right? Why are you asking me all these questions? You weren't even my appointment today. Fuck, take responsibility for yourself, young warrior. Carry on, my wayward son. There will be peace when you are done. Aho. Carry on, my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no
Don't you cry.